This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Renegade Report. I'm Jonathan. And uh, Roman is present. And I hope we will have a show next week. Well, uh, we're coming to you live from the... Uh, not so live, actually. No, not very uh, live. <laughs> pre-recorded from the bunker at uh, cliffcentral.com. Right. No, no. And in Kandla's next week, they got a huge bunker underneath. And then, who knows where? Yeah, well, we have to, you have to shield yourself from the radiation, the incoming fallout from, from the North Korean strike. Yeah, we're not talking that work Twitter has found us out. We're just saying, North Korea is going to destroy us. Um, the tensions are rising. They almost destroyed Japan the other day. Yeah. Kim Jong-un, yeah, he's got to be in his bonnet about something. Yeah, they just set off a 100 kiloton uh, hydrogen bomb. Uh, just uh, about 30 kilometers, I understand, away from the Chinese border. Apparently, they could feel the vibrations in China, at least in that area. Yeah, I mean, I feel sorry for Donald Trump. You know, the one, the one, sorry for Donald yeah, Trump. the one hour he's helping people pack food into like pickup trucks in in Hurricane, well, in Texas rather, and then the next he's tweeting about escalating tensions in North Korea and putting up uh, sanctions against anyone who trades with them. Well, he said he's thinking about that. That's a terrible idea. How can you how can you sanction trade with China? <laughs> America is not going to exist. <laughs> it's a good point, but but we've actually we potentially found the solution because even if North Korea is going to nuke us all, um, we just need to get to Mars for it relatively quickly. Indeed, and and on the way there, we need to eat, of course. And once we are on there as well, we need to eat as well. So um, just you know, fortuitously. Uh, to help our listeners get to Mars as well, we found uh, a food scientist who used to work for NASA to speak on the podcast. Yeah, so uh, Michelle Pachonik, uh, former former NASA food scientist, uh, involved involved in all of that kind of stuff at uh, NASA, and she's been in South Africa for the South African Association for Food Science and Technology, or SAFOST. Um, she gave some talks over there, and she's been kind enough to join us on the show today. Welcome to the show, Michelle. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Michelle Pachonik, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? Uh, great, thanks. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. I saw on your sort of Skype handle that uh, you're from Houston. Is that correct? Um, until about seven weeks ago, I lived in Houston. I still own a house in Houston. Shame. Which so flooded. It did flood. flooded in Harvey. And, yeah. And your yeah. family and friends are all okay? All the family and friends are – my son who and his fiance are fine. Friends are fine. Many of our friends were affected by the flood. Um, yeah, our neighborhood is one of the key neighborhoods that floods quite frequently. We're near one of the bayous. And so, um, so this has been yeah, catastrophic. It's catastrophic. Looking at the pictures from Houston and recognizing where the pictures are being taken. We yeah. lived in Houston for 32 years. It's, um, it's been heart wrenching and devastating and, Shame. um, you know, fourth largest city in the country mm. and it's not clear how they're going to, um, Recover. build back up. Yeah. yeah. Well, if, if, if anyone can, I'm, I'm sure the, the, the U S can, can do it and get it done. And in Houston, it's amazing hearing the stories. People who have been flooded are still out there, um, volunteering their time, donating, um, doing whatever they can to help out their, their neighbors and friends and even people who they don't know. And it's, it's really been um, wonderful to see how helpful and 
giving the people of Houston are, as well mm. as the rest of the country. But um, yeah, people who've lost everything are still helping out. It's wonderful. All right, let's uh, let's get on to the business at hand, which is that you're a food scientist. So before we even talk about your career and all the stuff that you've done, uh, what's a food scientist? <laughs> so a food scientist is a scientist in whatever area you want it to be in. I happen to be more in the chemistry area, but it could have been engineering or sensory or um, uh, microbiology, but it, it applies that science to food. And so the, the special part of food science is that it is a multidisciplinary field. And so you get to uh, network and, and, and um, work with people from all disciplines, but all with the key focus of science of the food. So if we go to a shopping mall and the grocery store and we take something off the shelf, we you know, we, we don't even think about it. How much, uh, how much work and how much science goes into a lot of the stuff we eat? Um, an incredible amount of science goes into what you're eating. So anything from um, the package, is that the right packaging material to provide the right barrier properties for a shelf life of what you need that food to, to uh, last for? Mm. Um, the chemistry, you know, is the, is, is, are the ingredients the right ingredients to provide that shelf life? Are the ingredients the right ingredients for the flavor? So we've tested the flavor. Um, what about the nutrition? So we've tested for the nutrition, what the content of that nutrition is. And, you know, it goes on. How is that food processed? Um, what back to the nutrition, what's on the nutrition label to sh- tell the consumer what that content is. Mm. Um, so it's just uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of science and thought and consideration has gone into each food product that you would find in the grocery store. And what's amazing to me is that despite all this work and research uh, going into, into food, I can still go down to the supermarket and buy some vegetables for a very, very low price. You can. And, and part of that, you're meaning like a canned vegetable, not fresh. Uh, yeah. Yeah. A canned vegetable or, yeah. or, or tinned goods of sorts. So a couple of things. One is, um, a lot of that has have been around for a long time. We already know how to process that. We know how to, you know, if it's just a plain, I'll call it, you know, plain vegetable, that's already been done. So there's not as much research involved. That research was done 30 or 40 years ago. But now let's think about a new product, um, whether it's a different flavor of vegetables or a different rice mix um, all the time and effort that has to go into that or new um, ready-to-eat meal preparation that's either um, shelf-stable or on in your freezer case. That's all been – that may all be new products, and that's where the, the effort comes in. Right. But even so, okay, for example, McDonald's, it, it's not maybe the best food in the world by any means, but it, it's a processed food. It has nutritional qualities in it, and it's some of the cheapest food in the world while being – not the most nutritious, but being fairly, nutri- being fairly <laughs> right. nutritious for, for what it is, if you compare it to Correct. the price at least. I mean, that, that's well, quite an amazing achievement. It is. And, and the other thing to consider is that the margins, the profit margins in the food products tend to be much lower than the profit margins, let's say, for a uh, um, high-tech product or jewelry or something like that. So um, 
that's also the reason why the prices are low and for the competition reason that if someone else is going to price it lower, then they're out of, uh, you know, they don't sell their products. So it's a very competitive industry. Okay. And you've, you've been obviously involved uh, previously at NASA. You were involved with food technology there and food science. What did, what did you do? <laughs> I did a few things at NASA. So um, I started out and, and continued for about 14 of my 17 years as uh, managing the food science research for future Mars missions. And so there's where, you know, I had to use my my science background and look at the integration and understand how the food and the food system interacts with not just the human, but the other systems within the vehicle that would go on to Mars. I also had about three years opportunity to manage the food system for the shuttle missions uh, the last few years of before the shuttle was retired. So there I was, as my, uh, family says I was feeding the astronauts, so um, making sure that our shuttle astronauts had the food they wanted for their 7- to 14-day mission. And then the last three years, I was um, part of the management team for the Human Research Program. So the Human Research Program, which does fund the food science research, but looks at all the human research needed to go on to Mars. So you know, yes, food is very, very important, but also what about the physiological changes going on in the body, bone loss, muscle loss, um, cardio changes? What about behavior issues? You're going far, far away from home for up to three years. And so we were looking at all of the human risks and, and mitigating those risks through research. So in your research, I mean, first of all, the distinction to be made is how different is it producing food for astronauts in that environment compared to uh, human beings on Earth? Is there a massive distinction between the two? There's a lot of distingu- distinguish, uh changes between the two. So first of all, um, unlike here on Earth, our, our crew members are only eating the food that we provide them. They can't go off to McDonald's or to a, their favorite restaurant because they don't feel like eating at home. So we're providing them with all their food, and we have to make sure that that food is nutritious and safe and acceptable. And the other big, the other big difference is we have to be very careful about how much that food weighs and how much trash it produces and what volume it takes because – this is all launch mass and volume, and and that's all very um, expensive to launch. Uh, the the numbers I've heard is it's about a million U.S. dollars to launch a pound of anything <laughs> to Mars because Mars is a longer mission. It's 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 less than that to go to International Space Station. So you have to be very careful to make sure that you've that everything you're putting into that food and how you're packaging it and how you're stowing it is um, the most efficient way without sacrificing quality, safety, acceptability, nutrition. So, so on those, on those uh, shuttle missions, let's, let's talk about the, the past stuff before we talk about the future stuff. Um, it, it's obviously it's, it's freeze-dried food. Is, is that fair and accurate way um, of describing that's about- it? 30% of the food is freeze-dried, okay. so we have a lot of different foods, and we currently still man the International Space Station and have since the year 2000, mm. um, but all the food, it, we've got what we call our pouched food or wet food, and that's most of that is, um, I'll say it's a canned food in a pouch. Mm-hmm. We call it thermostabilized, 
And we also have about eight neat items um, that are irradiated to what we call commercial sterility. So, again, not um, very similar to a canned food in how um, how much we've killed the microorganisms, but through irradiation instead of heat and pressure. And then, of course, we have our freeze-dried foods. And then there are beverages that are all in powdered form, whether it's coffee in whatever way you take your coffee or tea with cream, with sugar, with lemon, or or black or, or plain. It's all pre-mixed, um, different flavored drink mixes, uh, orange and, and lemon and lime. And then we have what I call, we call them the natural foods. Um, but they're the, the middle aisle of the supermarket store, the shelf-stable items, whether they're fruits, dried fruits, nuts, um, granola bars, um, things like that, which you can just – that we don't have – we, we they'll repackage it at NASA to individual serving sizes, but there's no extra processing that happens. And, and uh, any good stuff like – you know, is it is it kind of uh, slim pickings when you when you go into space? Is it just no, actually, airline food really? <laughs> no, no, actually, the food is is rather good. So there's about um, 130 choices of food items, plus then the beverages on top of that, um, and we get very positive feedback from the crew saying the food is really good. The problem is not the food. Um, well, is more the monotony. So even with 130 different items, uh, if you're up on International Space Station for six months, or we've had a couple of crew members up there for a year, or we go to Mars for three years, um, imagine just having a choice of a few items, uh, you know, and, and this yeah. 130 items covers both breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And so, you know, you, you start seeing, getting tired of the food and, and it, when you're in transit in microgravity or weightlessness, it's much more difficult to sort of mix and match the foods. Once they're on a surface of a planet and there's a little bit of gravity, it may be easier to say, you know, today I'm going to put in my tortilla um, chicken and tomorrow I'm going to do beef. And you can do that on on orbit, but it's, it'll be a lot easier when things don't float around and get messy, yeah. And well, my my next question really is that what are the nutritional requirements for people? Well, both in in at the space station or in shuttles, and arguably, what do you think the requirements will be for um, people who end up on Mars for a substantial amount of time? So um, we do know some things, and others we're still trying to learn. So we do know that the caloric needs are about the same, and uh, part of that is. It does take some effort when you're on orbit and weightlessness to keep stable and still if you're trying to do some work. And so that's, and there are, you know, places where you can put your feet or hands so that they're keeping stable, but it's still a lot of work. Plus to prevent our bone loss and muscle mass loss on, in our crew, the requirement is to actually exercise about two hours a day. And so because of that, the caloric needs are about the same. Nutritional needs are are typically about the same. We have increased the um, calcium level a little bit. Yeah. Um, they've increased vitamin D because you typically get vitamin D from the sunshine. Well, they don't get any sunshine, so they actually do take vitamin D supplements. And then items like iron um, should actually be a little bit lower because 
when you go up in orbit in weightlessness, you actually have a fluid shift in your, in your body. And because here on earth, a lot of our fluid, our water in our body is from the waist down. Well, now there is no up or down or gravity. And so some of that, so you actually expel some of that fluid within the first couple of days of launching. And because of that, the iron content in your blood gets a little, can get higher. And so it's part of the recommendation. Correct. So part of the recommendation is to bring that iron level down or not to at least increase higher than than the um, recommended daily allowance. And then what we're trying to look at or they're trying to look at, I shouldn't say we because I don't work there anymore, um, are, you know, like, should they be looking at some of the functional foods more, probiotics, antioxidants to protect the body from um, some of the environmental concerns, uh, especially going on to Mars. Um, I think the biggest concern is going to be, again, if they're not eating well because they're getting tired of the food, they're not going to get the right nutrition. But then there's also um, we don't know yet or they don't know yet whether things like bone loss or uh, other physiological changes actually even sort of, you know, you lose some and then you're going to even out um, if you look, think about a graph. But um, we don't know that. We There, there was uh, – there's been two crew members, a Russian and an American, mm. who have been up there for one year. And um, the data is still – being analyzed so we don't know if there's any changes from like six months to a year and then we'll have to they'll have to figure out what happens between one year and And three three years years. um the expectation is it's we think in most cases there will be some sort of stabilization at some level but we don't they don't know what that will be yeah it's it's always been interesting because mars has about once uh is it is it one third the gravity? Three eighths. It's about three eighths gravity. Um, the moon has one sixth gravity. Yeah. And so our best guess, and they can do some centrifuge studies to figure it out where they spin people around in like a little container. But, um, our best guess is moon is, is much more similar to weightlessness at one sixth gravity and Mars might be closer to having some impact on the gravity. So bone loss. We don't expect there to be as much bone loss on Mars, but it's still not full gravity. You're still not doing, getting as much sort of weight bearing onto your muscles and bones as in, um, yeah. on, but, on Earth. But do you, is there any, uh, increase in heart? Cause I mean, in theory, if, if we go to Mars, I don't know what they've mapped, but w- are we sure that human physiology would be able to cope? Let's say a, a, a baby born on Mars. Um, do do we know what that human would look like at age thirty, for example, if they well, survived? Yeah, we um, there is no, at least nothing I know of. Let's put it that way. Uh, understanding of what would happen, um, what we we do. Um, there has been some studies at NASA on like plants, um, especially on International Space Station. Can mm. you grow plants? Where roots normally go down. Well, there is no down. Well, it ends up that the roots go, the plants go to the light and the roots go to the water. So if you put the water in the sky, so, well, or you put the water down, yeah. it, the, the roots are going to grow that way. Okay. Um, I don't know what would happen to a young person, you know, and, and, uh, there's been discussion. How old 
should those astronauts be or the, those crew members be because it may be, it'll be it will likely be an international mission to Mars should they be young where they're more healthy more able to handle any physiological changes or should they be older because they may be more mature or maybe if they lose bone loss it's not as um significant significant mm-hmm. because they're already losing some bone mass anyway. They're older. So um, that's the kind of questions that a lot of our scientists are going to be asking and providing pros and cons to management to give them those to allow them to make those decisions. Uh, Michelle, wh- wh- another well, another question from me really is during the research of actually finding food for consumption in space, has there been any of that technology research uh, used for food on Earth, so to speak? I-, I would assume the shelf life of food that you worked on is, is relatively high, uh, maybe a few years even. Has there been Correct. any, any research to implement for food in, in on, on Earth? It's a good question, and, and actually there was a little bit of discussion at the meeting that I've been in about use-by dates and whether we should be extending them or not. You know, the 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 um, the, the the main purpose of the food industry is to feed the public. They do have a purpose to make money, also, and so um, they have less interest in having extended shelf life foods. So they're okay with you know a shelf life of food that's a year old. Um, uh, the shelf life at NASA is going to be for Mars mission has to be at least five years and probably closer to seven years. And so that's unheard of in, in all sectors except one. And that's our department of defense where, um, they do want to keep some inventory of food that is shelf stable in case of war or disaster or something like that. And so, um, NASA's worked very closely with the Department of Defense in developing these foods uh, together. And some of these pouched items started as the meals ready to eat uh, through our military or Department of Defense. And we have, or NASA has reformulated them for NASA needs and nutrition and all that because our, our soldiers, their nutritional needs are much higher because they are 20 something year olds who might be marching or hiking for long periods of time and need mm. many more calories than our astronauts do. So, but we have worked with them. Um, in the food industry itself, I th- we're starting to see uh, in the last few years some changes, and, and I don't know if we can attribute it to NASA and our Department of Defense, but you're seeing more pouch products, and you certainly have seen that in Europe, and I don't know about South Africa, where the pouch products are much more prevalent than canned products. And um, NASA uses pouch products because it's much easier to stow because they're flatter and they don't have round, they're not round, yeah, which edges. provides gaps, and they're they're less heavy. The pouch products, um, in which and that's why our military uses it because they've got to be carrying all this food. And what we're finding is, as distribution costs get higher in the uh, industry, the public sector it also becomes much more um, enticing to have these foods in pouches versus cans. So we are seeing some changes like that. Well, I'm actually just thinking, just came to me now, but if uh, we all start having our food delivered to us by drones, um, <laughs> <laughs> then uh, it, it makes much more sense to have pouch food instead of canned food, just from a, a, a weight yes. perspective as well. Yes, yes, you're right, you're right. Yeah, so... 
Um, I'm sure a lot of our listeners would have would have seen a movie like The Martian. Mm-hmm. Um, One of my favorite movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. So I assume they did some things right because if you're a scientist and they didn't, then you'd, you'd probably be a bit upset with it. Um, so for those who haven't seen it, uh, Matt Damon, the, the um, single un- unluckiest man on earth who always gets left behind. <laughs> <Or on> Mars. <laughs> um, saving Private Ryan and, and, and he, he always gets left behind somewhere. Um, he basically gets stuck on on Mars. His crew leaves him, leaves him behind, assuming he's dead, and he manages to uh, get by by creating his own garden of potatoes um, in a area that's not a vacuum uh, of space. Um, is that a, a realistic proposal? Is that kind of an idea of what would happen if we were go, to go to Mars? So there is some talk about, um, and, or I think it will happen, um, where we'll grow some plants on the Mar- on Mars. They'll be in growth chambers that are, you know, have the right level of oxygen and carbon dioxide and the right lighting and the right temperature. Um, the Martian actually, you know, that was a very large growth. I'll call it a growth chamber, but area that, that he grew his potatoes. And it could be, you know, depending on how much um, NASA or the crew depend on the crops will be dependent. Well, that will decide It'll how big size. that that will be. If we were to feed the crew with just plants, it would have to be probably twice, uh, maybe, I don't know, or about the same size as what Matt Damon had. But maybe all is needed is some fresh fruits and vegetables, and including potatoes. And the, the, the potatoes are nice, um, are, and I don't remember the correct term, but potatoes can sort of regenerate on itself. And you don't need the seeds, you just need the eyes. And so you can continually have a source of potatoes. And whether that's white potatoes or sweet potatoes or yams, the same thing happens. But um, it could be bell peppers or strawberries or or um, uh, cherry tomatoes. They would all be dwarf-sized plants because you want to have more fruit and less greenery and stuff that would have to either – would have to be dried to get the moisture out and then – Maybe the the dried leaves and roots would become fertilizer, but everything should be recycled when you're on Mars. But yes, the what Matt Damon did, I was is is good. I don't know he in the book it claims he has enough protein from those potatoes. I'm not sure I'm convinced about that. Mm. But um, to give a little bit of history on the book, Andy Ware, the, the author of The Martian, actually started writing this as a blog and the blog he would get and he just basically did research on the internet and came up pretty close but because he had a blog he was getting people commenting on the blog saying no you did that wrong you did that wrong this is how it should happen so the book is pretty close and then when he published he took all those inputs and made it better so it's, it's crowdsourced pretty close <laughs> it was it really was and um what I enjoyed about the book as well as – well, and, and the movie showed it a little bit – is the critical thinking and the science thinking that the, char- the main character went through on problem solving and going through it. And yes, there were a few um, few 
incorrect items that they had to do to make the movie work, work um, or even the book work. One was the initial dust storm. You wouldn't have a dust storm like that on Mars. Um, the exercise room in the movie, you would never see an exercise room that large. <laughs> um, and then, you know, my first thought when he went off and he was, I think, trying to um, get rescued and he was in the space suit in space and he wasn't tethered. And it's like, no, you, you're always tethered. You can't. Not. So there were certain things that were that were off. But in general, Andy Ware got it right. So I mean, we've been talking about food and, and just the, the assumption was made that we'll get to Mars. The, the question is, for what purpose? Uh, what is the philosophical purpose of going to Mars? So uh, Elon Musk has something which says there'll be, he's afraid of a giant catastrophe on Earth and all human knowledge is, is lost completely along with humanity. Uh, we had a, a previous guest who actually wants Earth to destroy itself through global warming so that we can create other type of uh, political systems off planet, so to speak. But for NASA itself, what is the value of, of uh, sending people to Mars? Um, there's a lot to learn from about the solar system and about space and robots can't do it all. And so, um, humans will go and do that critical thinking and analysis in real time because there is a communication difference of about 20 minutes each way. So if, if, uh, NASA or uh, gives a command to the rover, it's not until 40 minutes later that we know whether the rover did it or not. So, um, and, and, and humans tend to explore and, uh, learn. And so another reason to go to Mars and in Mars is probably the, besides our own moon is probably the most accessible planet for us to go to. And to your knowledge, was any talk of sort of tariff, Terraformer in creating, making Mars green, essentially. Is, is that a big plan or is that, is that more sort of theoretical? You know, you get these, think, these sci-fi drawings with these massive greenhouses and under yeah, domes. Um, we'll have to wait and see. So, <laughs> um, there's a couple of things. One is there is a, um, an agreement. I don't know what they call it. The Planetary Protection Act. And similar to at least our, our national parks in the United States, where they say the only thing you should be leaving are your footprints, uh, we have a similar uh, edict, I guess you'd say, that says we're not going to contaminate the Mars surface or any other surface um, with something. Um, now, having said that, yes, we left flags on the moon, etc., but... Um, I, I, I was just talking to someone um, a few weeks ago, and their claim, and that was their opinion, is that Mars is not going to be our um, salvation if if the Earth gets ruined from from climate change or whatever else, you know, or whatever else happens. Um, Mars will not be the solution, but there is a there, you know, in in people's vision uh the hope is that we would have similar to the international space station we would have a continued presence at on the mars surface and 
what I doubt that would be a hundred people. I think it would be closer to six or 10 people, um, or maybe three people, but we would start small and grow from there. Yeah. And is there previously it was the idea was we go to the moon and then we, we, we launch from the moon to, to Mars because launching off uh, something with basically no gravity or very little is much easier. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, is, is the moon the idea of setting up the colony on the moon? Uh, out the window at this stage it just it just seems reasonable it's two and a half days away it's uh, you can kind of right. wave at it uh, <laughs> the yeah. communication is quick uh, if there's a problem there's, you can get there quickly right um we'll wait and see so um the moon was was a plan for a while as you discussed then it went away we we're going to do an asteroid recovery mission to test some of our technologies um the latest i think has us going to sort of orbiting the moon because then you don't have to launch from the moon's gravity yeah. and they call it a Lagrange point. So it's equal gravity pull from the moon and the, and the earth. And then you would launch from there. Um, that's the last I saw of the proposals. Mm. Um, but all of that is being proposed. And the last I heard Congress or the U S Congress has not approved that plan. Um, Yes, it would make more sense to do some of this testing of the technologies closer to home. And actually, they're talking about even docking something on the International Space Station that is separate from the space station where we could test some of those technologies also. Just quickly on the International Space Station, just because you've you've had some exposure, has that been quite a good success? Yes, it has been a success. Um, we've learned a lot. Um both about the human physiology, uh, behavior. And, uh, so yes, and, and it has been continually manned or, or humanized. (laughs) I don't want to say man for (laughs) since 2000. Um, we've had our first one year mission and there are, uh, there's, there's discussions about having some, some more one year missions so that, uh, NASA and, um, the rest of the space agencies can better understand the physiological changes in the humans and, and behavior changes and all that. So, um, and even understanding, did they get more sick of the food after one year versus six months? Um, and so those debriefs, I haven't, I haven't seen any of the results, but certainly the, the two crew members have been debriefed mm. and asked those kinds of questions. So this might be in the realm of science fiction, but um, why bother with food at all if there is a mechanism to make uh, all the benefits of food um, easier to literally swallow, as in a pill or a, a drip or something to that effect? Or, or, is, or are we still like quite far off from that? I think we're pretty far from that, but more importantly, um, food – if you think about, and this has been sort of the vision that I've, I've, I always go back to is imagine you're on the space vehicle and you start seeing Earth get smaller and smaller and smaller and realize it's going to be another three years before you're going to see Earth getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You are really isolated from Earth, from family, from friends. So food tends to be one of those things that you can still have control over. So you can decide, I don't want chicken today. I'm going to have beef. 
Whereas it's probably not your decision that you do this experiment or this task because that's on your timeline and you have to do it. But the food gives you some choice and some psychological um, feeling that you are in control for something. And so if that choice is I'm going to take a pill or put an IV in me, that's just not going to be as um, pleasurable as eating your your dinner, uh, having some soup or your breakfast. And so uh, food will never go away. The other thing we've learned is uh, when you talk about shelf life of food, extending it to five to seven years is going to be a huge challenge. But what we do know is that your supplement pills, like your multivitamin pills, lose their nutrition faster than the food. No, that, so. That's actually a very interesting point. A, a lot of people do tend to to forget about the the, the social benefits of food. Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. it could also be a way for for uh, astronauts and I'm not sure what you call people on Mars, people who are on Mars, to actually get together at certain times of the day to to eat a meal and and discuss Correct. things. Uh, that's also another Correct. benefit of food, which yeah, yes. sometimes even here on Earth we don't actually see that benefit. Right, and and in fact, um, it is up to the commander for each mission on the International Space Station, but most of them will require their crew to eat dinner together for that very reason. It's really a good time to discuss, decompress, and just relax and have, you know, have a good conversation. Hmm. I don't know how much in your expertise it is, but moving a little bit away from space to the advancement of food on Earth. So we've discussed packaging um, and some of the slightly different ways in which in which we're starting to distribute food. Um, what do you what do you make of uh, meat, for example, that's now being manufactured in labs? Um, I think in the future that meat might be very um, useful. At this point, it is so much still in the basic science realm. It it is costing a lot more money and time to produce those meat cultures than it does to grow a cow and, and, and slaughter it for the, for the meat. Um, That does not take into account all of the, you know, the, 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 the um, environmental footprints and all that. But, um, the one time they made, uh, I think, a hamburger patty, yeah. and I, 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 people said it was good, but it wasn't the same as eating a, eating normal, a real yeah. hamburger patty that you just took off the grill, and, and it just wasn't that same texture and flavor and all that. So I think it's got potential, but I, but I also think it's, it's a few years, if not many years down the road before we're going to um, see it economically feasible in my opinion sure and and uh so you think there's any next big thing or or we're going to carry on plodding along i really like the um the future for potentially for 3d printing um i think that's where uh you could have some sort of basic and i'll call them paste or something where you have um you know, and I don't, I don't know how it will work, but maybe the a right chemicals, paste basically. and a carbohydrate paste, 
and you mix and match with some flavors and colors and you come up with something that is, um, is, is, is edible, acceptable and nutritious. And so I think that's going to be the future that we might see. So you, you, you print a cheeseburger. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great notion actually. I approve of it. But um, <laughs> Michelle, as a scientist, I mean, okay, so just for, for analogy, I feel a bit sorry for, for very good chefs. Uh, those people that prepare food very, very well because and Ramon is French. We need to, we need to just throw that in there. And an, and an awful <laughs> chef. I, I'm terrible at cooking. I, I burn water. If it's possible, I would do it. Um, but, but chefs have, uh, so a good friend of mine is a chef and it's very difficult to actually entertain him at home or at a restaurant because the food he makes is superior to the food that is served to him in other establishments. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. As a food scientist, does this happen to you where you actually look at, at food at the supermarket and you think to yourself, that's terrible. The, the, yeah. The, the way it's yeah. done is terrible. The packaging's awful. It's not as good as it could be. Uh, it's completely off topic, of course, but as someone who is, who's, who has a PhD in this, like, does that affect your buying choices? Um, it does. And, um, and it actually, uh, so one of my, and my kids are now grown, but one of my, um, rules or, or, or my personal rules was it was very important to me to make sure my children had a healthy dinner every night and that we ate together. And, um, and I don't like to cook. I think I've gotten to like it more now, but I, it, to me, it was always a chore, but it was important to me to do that. And, um, but you know, I, I sort of laugh because my husband's gotten me out of the habit, but when I first met him in graduate school, and he's not a food scientist, and I would go to a restaurant and I'd start evaluating the food <laughs> and say, oh, that texture is wrong, they overcooked it, or that's not the right flavor, or they added some strange flavor, what is it? And um, he said, you've got to stop that. We're going to dinner to enjoy the food. Don't critically analyze it. And um, yet you put... 10 food scientists together and that's what we do. Um, so lunches together it, must be just <laughs> quite, quite something. I remember many, many years ago we were, um, it was re- before the, one of the Institute of Food Technologists annual meetings and we were there a day or two early for another pre-meeting and eight or eight of us went to dinner and we started analyzing the menu and the food and the waitress is looking at us really strange. And, and we just said, Get used to it. There are 18,000 of us showing up soon, and you're going to see this a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Shame. Well, I, my, my uh, mother-in-law has a background in, in, uh, in food science. So uh, uh-huh. uh, uh, tomato sauce or ketchup, she uh, is rabidly against, um, basically, um, and, and ice cream as well. She's not a fan of ice cream, knows how they make it, and, and, <laughs> yeah. and, yeah. and just uh, isn't uh, based on just how it's how it's made she's not she's not the biggest fan of it so so i know the i know the neuroses that come that come with a career <laughs> i suppose i suppose that's that's one of the the, the, the pitfalls of, of being a food scientist it's the pitfalls but it's also the fun part sure. um it, it's an activity that you know so you can take and and the one thing i've when when i was at nasa um i would say people think they're an expert in food science because everyone eats and they all know food and there's a lot that goes on beyond that. And so, um, 
again, you're exposed to food everywhere, whether it's in your home, at your workplace, or at a restaurant. And so you get to apply your your career, your knowledge, your science, wherever you are. And that's, you know, you don't see that in every career. So to me, it's an advantage because it's just fun. Excellent. Well, yeah. it's great to have someone passionate about about what they do yeah, about something that we don't think about on a daily basis <laughs> yeah, well, but which we use every day yeah well, absolutely as as we said you know i think most people just take something off the shelf uh, don't even realize how much work's gone into it but mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. you and your 18,000 friends have have uh, <laughs> <laughs> have done a hell of a lot of work uh, michelle uh, thank you so much for coming onto the show are you still in south africa for a while uh, I go home on uh, – when do I go home? I think it's Thursday night. All right. Well, uh, so. thank, thank you for, for, for coming. I hope you've enjoyed, your, enjoyed yourself. You've been in the Cape, so it's a, it's a beautiful yes, part of the country. Yes, it's a wonderful city. Yes. And I uh, hope you've uh, enjoyed some good food and wine. Mm-hmm. I have. I have. Excellent. Excellent. Um, thank you very, very much for coming on the show. We really do appreciate it, uh, taking out of your time and your day. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk to you. Excellent, excellent. And, uh, yeah, that's, well, that's, that's, that's it from us. The pleasure is all ours, Michelle. Thank you once again. Okay, thank you. Thank uh, you. Cheers, eh? Yep. Bye. Bye. Right, so that is Michelle Pachonik, former NASA food scientist. I'm going to go to, to I mean, I'm white, I only shop at Woolies, right? So I'm going to go there and... and read all the packaging and say this is inferior <laughs> don't don't all Willie's customers do that just read the packaging and then, and then make decisions on depends who they're buying nutrition. for right if they buy it for themselves sure if they buy it for the domestic worker yeah it's okay <laughs> uh, Ramon a completely non-controversial podcast made controversial in the last 30 seconds um, thank you for listening a little bit of something different on the show but we should, thought we'd uh, take the opportunity with uh, having someone of that caliber in the country. Indeed. And uh, Jonathan told me two hours ago that we were recording today with this person. So, uh, yeah, a bit unprepared, but I don't think we seemed unprepared. But nevertheless, John, thank you. It yeah. was uh, good work on your part. If you, uh, if you enjoyed the show, as you know, you can always subscribe on iTunes or your preferred uh, platform. Uh, you may also find us on Twitter at Renegade underscore report on Facebook, Renegade Report Group and the Renegade Report page. If you really like the show or you would just like to support us, we are on Patreon. You can find us there and donate towards the show. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. This is cliffcentral.com.